from legendary locals we all know to people you should get to know. Follow Ipswich Today on your favourite app and never miss an episode or go to ipswichtoday.com.au Coming up, Queensland's own international child movie star in the 1950s who can also claim he played drums on the tarmac at the old Brisbane airport. He played drums in a jazz band, then in the 60s he joined the Bee Gees. Colin Peterson is an old boy from Ipswich Grammar School and became a lifelong friend of Morris Gibb. Now aged in his 70s, his life story is still being written and he has returned to the stage, but not in the role you would expect. Colin Peterson is my special guest in this episode of Ipswich Today. It's Wednesday, October 12, 2022, and I'm Alan Roebuck. Ipswich Today acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which it is produced and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. Colin Peterson, thank you for speaking with Ipswich today. It's an absolute pleasure, Alan. Thank you for having me. Look, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Kingaroy, um, which is a small country town on the South Burnett uh, district in, in Queensland. Yeah, about, ma- made I, famous by a former Premier, nonetheless. Exactly. Well, <laughs> we'll move on from that. <laughs> what are your earliest <laughs> memories of growing up there? Ah, uh, goodness me. few memories music-wise. I, I remember I was so overawed, really, by hearing music on the radio. One of the first songs I can remember is a, a, a song called Singing in the Rain uh, from uh, the, the m- movie of the same title. Yes. And one thing that struck me, that no one, I, I wouldn't hold a conversation if there was a, a, a song on the radio. I would just sit there in a mystical state. Colin, uh, I think we could all relate to that because I, I reckon everybody has their very favourite first song that they can remember. Well, the thing about songs, and I touched on this uh, with the show, is, and and it is extraordinary how certain songs, and particularly the recordings of those songs, can take you back in an instant to a certain time in a certain place. Members of the audience who we we chat with after the show, which which is part of the night that I really enjoy, constantly say to me, oh, that particular song... I can picture where I was at that particular time. We were in the front of our old Holden or I had had my first kiss with that song in the background or little things like that, you know. And that is the wonderful thing about songs. And, well, the Gibbs gave us so many over a long period of time. They certainly and did. I had just returned home to Australia but, uh from doing uh, a, my third and final film, a film called A Cry From The Streets. And that was the the end of my acting career because my parents decided to pull me out of it and get me back to school. And uh, that was tough at the time because I uh, it wasn't so much the fame, which started with Smiley, obviously. Yeah. It wasn't so much the fame, it was the art 
of making a movie and i was fascinated by all the different jobs that people had to do all right let in, me let me take you back uh, yeah. let me take you back colin have a listen to this smiley smiley coming mum smiley they call him smiley's his name happy go lucky well, there you go. There's a bit of a uh, blast from the past for you. Colin, the prevailing. That is, that, that, <laughs> that is my first scene in the movie. And that that was the first scene that we shot. And I was perched up in the top of this tree, pretending I was Captain Cook in the crow's nest. And I had this dreadful moment of stage fright. I'd had that once before when I was really little up in Kingaroy doing a tap dance at, at a, in a show in a hall called, at, they had these shows called a Steadfords. Yes. I th think that they were the only two occasions that, that really affected me. I've just sort of, um, I got over that pretty, pretty early on there. And that song, by the way, was sung by an Australian lady, Shirley Abercare. And she thinks she had a few hit records in, in London at the time. And uh, it's a very pretty tune, I it think. Is. Looking at the movie now through the lens of 2022, it certainly shows up the prevailing attitudes of the 50s, which, you know, they don't translate well to today. However, it's a great time capsule of Australia in that period. Uh, well, it, it, Interesting, it, too, the book was released yeah. 10 years before the movie was made. What the 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 record or no no the book the book was released oh, uh, book. in 1945 yeah. and the project shelved which worked in your favour. Um, now were you ten years old at the time? I think I was nine when nine. I did it. Okay, and and uh, there were two books, Smiley and Smiley Gets a Gun, and they were written by an Australian chap called Moore Raymond, who was brought up in a Queensland town called Augathella. He went on in life and became quite a well-known journalist in London. He wrote for The Observer and wrote features for The Observer. And I think he would have possibly been in his 30s when he decided to have a stab at writing a novel. A lot of novels are semi-autobiographical, aren't they, really? Mm, yeah. and, and this was about his childhood growing up in Augathella. And he wasn't the real Smiley, but the real Smiley was his best mate. And uh, it was about their adventures together. And it's a simple yarn about a little kid striving to, to buy a bicycle. And it was, well, I think charming is the word. I was so fortunate to, to land such a, a role that I, I could feel really comfortable doing because I'd previously lived in a small town. I, I had a lot of dialogue because I was in virtually every scene. So <laughs> mum and I would spend a couple of hours every night going through the script, uh, the scenes for the following day. And then when I'd learnt my, my part, mum would say, hang on, Colin, hang on. We're only halfway there. And I say, what do you mean, Mum? We're halfway there. I know my line. She said, now we're going to swap roles. Oh. And I'll play Smiley and you play the other character. 
I think that was a stroke of genius on her behalf. Wow. Because what what would happen in a scene is that I I would anticipate what the other character was saying. Yeah. And I would understand exactly what what the motives behind their dialogue were. And so there were moments there I remember doing scenes with Chips Rafferty that w- I would forget the cameras and the crew and the people around, and it was just like having a conversation with him. I, I think there's a term for it. It's called in the zone. Mm, mm. Oh, yes. And when you're in the zone, you've got all the time. It's, time slows down, and you've got all the time in the world to play your part. Did your mum come from a theatrical background? She played the piano. She could she could read. She learned as a young child. I think I th- she was. We weren't Catholic. We were Methodists. Mm. But she went to piano lessons and and learned. A nun taught her. She had apart from being being able to read. If you play or she heard a song on the radio, you left her for about ten fifteen minutes. She'd play it. Oh, that's you know, gifted. She, yeah, <laughs> I'm she, jealous of that. <laughs> no, she, no, she had a great ear. Mm, um, mm. And the drumming, well, the drumming was just in me. Uh, I used to, uh, always, I remember, stop tapping away at the table, Colin. <laughs> I'd be banging away with my knife and fork. And um, So your mum was very supportive. Did you have any formal acting training? No, none at all, none at all. I, I remember when, when it was announced that this um, uh, English film company were coming, London Films were coming out to Australia to find a boy to do the role. Mum sat down the library, first of all, and got the book. So we read, read the book together. And I remember when she handed me the newspaper and said, you read the front page, Colin. No, she wouldn't have said Colin. She would have said boy. <laughs> Listen, boy, you you read that front page article. It was always always boy when she was serious. Uh, and I and I read this article about the film crew coming out and blah blah blah. I now, said to Mum, I've had no experience at this, Mum. You know, there's no point me going along to the audition. And she said, Listen, boy. You've been up on a stage so many times now with these big jazz bands, which I'd done because I'd previously um, taken tuition. And she said, all you're doing with those audiences, you're communicating through your music. Now, in this instance, you'll be communicating with words through the camera. Mm. And there's absolutely no difference. So you can do this, I'm convinced. So we, ju- well, Julie, we, we, we went along to the audition and, and I landed the role. Now, I hear it was a bit of a two-stage process to actually get the role. Can you tell us about that? I turned up in my, literally, my Sunday suit uh, made of this dreadful material called Terraline <laughs> with, with long socks short pants, shiny shoes, and a tie, and and a jacket. 
and with my scrapbook, I'd put these press clippings in the scrapbook, little little articles of uh, the concerts that I'd done. And one clip clipping I was particularly proud of was a photograph of me meeting Gene Krupa, who you think Eric Clapton is a famous musician. <laughs> Let me tell you, Gene Krupa was a legend, an absolute legend. And I met him at Brisbane Airport with my drums set up on the tarmac. He walked down from the plane across to the drums and Harry Lebler, my teacher, had taught me a little drum solo to play. And he said, if if uh, Mr. Krupa uh, is still standing next to you when you finished this little drum solo, solo you just play it again. So uh, yeah, and I was particularly proud of proud of this photograph, but the uh, director Anthony Kimmons wasn't impressed at all, and just tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Oh, it's a lovely thing to do, uh, being a musician. You keep it up." And I walked out of the cinema and uh, told Mum the the story, and she said, "Oh, it, perhaps it's not meant to be, Colin." She was a big believer in fate. So I went down on the tram with mum and got out of my suit uh, in, in my old clothes and off with the shoes, bare feet, and I was playing marbles under one of those Queenslanders in the dirt. Yeah, yes, you would have been a bit dusty by then. I was, <laughs> and, and for some reason, and this changed my life, I thought to myself, I'll go back to the cinema because maybe I can just have a glimpse through a window or something of the process. I was just fascinated with the process. Yep. And I literally walked down the laneway at the side of the cinema, and as I approached these stair this staircase leading up to the fire doors, uh, they opened, and the director, who I'd seen earlier, came out, out and lit up a cigarette. He was just having a bit of a break from the auditions. He, he had three boys, I think, inside. And he looked at me, he didn't recognise me, and he said, what are you doing here? And I'm, I, I'm no fool. I wasn't going to say, hey, don't you remember you saw me a couple of hours, an hour ago or something, <laughs> and, and you, you didn't think I was right for the role? <laughs> I, I said... I'm here for the audition. Oh, what a great story. And he looked at me again, and then he said, do you think you'd be any good at this? And and I'm halfway up the stairs before he finished the sentence. <laughs> and we we sat on the, on the stairs together, and we read through a scene from the movie, and it happened to be a, a scene at the police um, sergeant's office and he, the director relayed to mum later on when we when we started filming that that he decided there and then that I was the boy to do the role. So it was literally a chance meeting there. Two minutes before, I would have walked past. He would have come out. I would have gone. And 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 uh, conversely. Uh, a minute after he finished his cigarette, he would have gone back inside and I would have walked walked past. I hope so, your mum said it was fate yet again. <laughs> well, she did actually. When I went when I went back to the house, I went up the back stairs 
and mum's sitting there with grandma and they're having a cup of tea and uh, in all probability ice vovo biscuits and and I said to mum, no, she said, where have you been? And you didn't have to account for yourself at, in those days, you know, home before dark, that was it. Before and, the lights came on. Yeah. Yep. And I said, um, I went back to the cinema. And she said, oh, Colin, there's no point in that. Uh, it, it just wasn't meant to be. And I said, you're wrong, Mum. I, I met the director again. And, and we read through a scene in the movie. And he took my details, my phone number and everything. And he said he'll be in touch. And I'll be flying down to Sydney next week for a screen test. And your mum thought, what? (laughs) Mum turned to grandma, this is true, word for word, and she said, isn't it extraordinary, mum? Mm. She said, this is fate. Isn't it wonderful that, that Colin met up with him again? Colin, I want to test your memory here. At the start of our chat, I played a little bit of the actual uh, opening credits of the film, but can you remember the actual first words you said in Smiley? I'm Captain Cook. Oh, you're close. You're clo- You're so close. Can I reveal it for you? I, 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 Here we go. The, Rainbow, lying on the starboard bow. Molly. Oh, Molly, Molly. Oh, thanks for playing and along with that. He, and then he comes in with the Captain Cook. That thing. is correct. Yeah, I put my, I'd, I'd forgotten that. Uh, thanks for being a good sport. Uh, we, we could play this again. Can you remember your last words? Um, it went on about Captain Cook. Uh, and then the Joe, last scene, the last scene where you got the bike, where you got the push bike. I know it's a test. Jehoshaphat. Yes, that's a. Now there's a word you don't hear often. Let, let's have a listen to it right now. Okay. Smiley, I'd like to show my appreciation of your brave action. What a beauty! Jehoshaphat. <laughs> oh, Jehoshaphat. That, that was a lovely little touch for the, the character, wasn't it? It was. The, it was the, indeed. The, the, a little kid so young had the, fa- had the fascination with big words like flabbergasting and, and words <laughs> like that. It was a lovely little touch to it. In fact, it was... I was just so so lucky to be given such a wonderful script. Yeah, really. And 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 a decade on, I was so lucky again as a drummer to be given such wonderful songs to play to. Yeah. Well, look, I want to move on from that. Yes, we we spent a fair bit of time on on the movie there. Now, wait, the way we're going, we're going to talk all day. <laughs> but, but we'll, we'll talk all day. Yeah. Look, there was a lot going on between movies and music in your teens. Tell us the story of meeting Morris Gibb. I'd heard of the of the Gibb brothers through hearing them on Brisbane radio. A disc jockey called Bill Gates had sort of taken them under his wing, so to speak, got them into the studio at 4BH in, in, in Brisbane. Yeah and recorded some of their songs and played them over the air. They didn't have a record deal at the time. 
uh, no records released at all. And I'd heard them for the first time, I think, when I was up at Ipswich Grammar School. And what was the song? It could have been Three Kisses of Love, something like that. And there was the harmonies that struck me first. And so then I, I, I moved from Ipswich Grammar School down, down to art school in Brisbane. And I spent about a, a year and a half or something at art school where I met Stevie Kipner. He was in my same class and he was a singer and wanted to be in a band. I'd already uh, made really great friends with a, a, another young young man called Carl Grosman. He was a day student at Ipswich Grammar and we'd been trying to write, well, we wrote some songs together and he was a real, really great guitar player, great rhythm guitar player. And so the three of us sort of got together. Carl was at uni studying law and we took on a couple of other players and we, we started uh, gigging around Brisbane. Then we all decided to have a go at being professional and left Brisbane. And it was only a couple of weeks after we arrived in Sydney, I was at, at a venue called The Bowl in Castle Ray Street. And Morris Gibb came up to me and introduced himself. And we just hit it off immediately. I finished up that night going back to the Gibb home. We sat up all night, literally all night. I became a really close friend of Morris's. And I got on well with the other other two as well. So during the, the, the year and a half or so that followed, I had the opportunity when I had time um, away from my band to uh, do some recordings with them. I recorded maybe about eight tracks or something like that with them in Sydney. And then after I, I, I decided to go back to England to pick up the pieces of my acting career, it was, um, they suggested that if, if nothing had eventuated, uh, that the uh, offer would be there for me to join the band, which I did in early February. So when they when they arrived in England. And so it was in early February uh, that I officially became the fourth BG. And you were with the band, was it two or three years? Going on three years. Mm -hmm. I think it was like two years and nine months, a similar period of time, incidentally, that, that I spent filming, which is sort of interesting, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Now, it must have felt like you entered another world, uh, from Kingaroy to London. That period with the band, Colin, uh, fame, mm. I'm guessing, came quite fast uh, from, you know, a, a person not known and then in the public eye and being adored on stage. Uh, is that how it sort of happened? And how did you handle that fame? Well, fortunately, I think, See, we're all so young. Yeah. The, the, the twins, for instance, were like 16 when they arrived in England, or 17 at the most. And as history recalls, fame was a problem, particularly the young, the, the twins, because it was on such a, such a scale that it was difficult for them to really get any perspective on. For my part, I think that, of course, I enjoyed the adulation and 
for a brief period there driving around London in my Ferrari, <laughs> a second hand, I should add, <laughs> a, a beautiful car. But there was always that voice in the back in my ear, my mother, back to my mother. A and a typical uh, instance of that was we were walking down a street in London and the film had been released, and we'd been we'd been uh, made some public appearances with with the uh, regarding the film, and so I was really well known in London. The film grossed more than the King and I. This this couple uh, walk up to, up to Mum and I in the street and ask Mum whether I was the boy in the film, and and she replied, "Yes, he is." And, and they said, would you mind if we got an autograph? So uh, I duly signed a bit of paper or whatever they had, and, and then we walk on. And just down the street, when we're out of earshot, so to speak, mum says, stop. And again, I repeat myself, but she probably said, now listen, boy. What she said was, Colin, I'm a bit disappointed. And I said, why, mum? And she said, you didn't spend enough time with those people. You you were a bit short with them. And I said, Mum, I'm just keen to wherever we are going, you know, Trafalgar Square or whatever. And she said, now you listen. She said, wasn't for those people, you, you wouldn't be in a job. Now, don't get me wrong. You're very good at what you're doing. And hats off to you. But... Always remember, there's a kid down the road who can kick a football better than you. And I was always on the job, you know. Um, we we spent hours and hours and hours in recording studios. And it was, for me, it was do the job well and take pride in, 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 in it, what you achieve. Australian-born Robert Stigwood was still yes. perfecting his craft as a band manager and record producer with the BGS. So now you and he came to blows. What happened? I should point out that he really wasn't our producer. He, he spent very little time in this. Well, he used to come in for the mixing sessions and, and, and contribute, but he wasn't a, a producer in, in, in the strict sense. We never really had a producer in the in the strict sense. I went on to in, uh, on to production after the the Gibbs, but Robert would never hesitate in getting his name up on on, on <laughs> in print. So anyway, I just thought I'd like to clear that up. No, that's a good point. Without Robert Stigwood, the BGS would never have happened. It takes a team for something like that to work, and he was an absolutely brilliant um, manager. I can't recall any mishaps on the road. Everything ran like clockwork. There were no mo mobile phones, none of that stuff. And there we set off to Europe with with an orchestra and it, and it just ran without a hitch. He was great with publicity. He was great with vision. He saw the big picture of us with an orchestra that was no, which made us unique on stage. We were the first band, I think, that uh, stepped up on a stage with an orchestra 
I, I believe. Mm. And it, it set us apart and ma- made us special. Unfortunately, he was in, uh, was in fact, and, and, and the Gibbs later sued him on these sort of grounds, he was taking a bigger piece of the pie than he should have been taking. And so after the band started to fall apart, people said to me, why did it end? You know, it's all so stupid. You should have stayed together. Well, that's not life. Things end in life. And I think that the, the, the two twins particularly felt that they wanted to prove that they could make some impact as individuals, which they'd never had the opportunity of doing with the Bee Gees. It was always the big brother and the, the, the two little cute twins. So when they got to 69, they wanted to venture out. And uh, Vince actually was the first first to leave. He wanted just to play in, in, in a band, no orchestra, wanted to play more blues-orientated uh, music. And then it left the four of us. A few months later, Robin leaves. There was some sort of argument about what would be our next single, and Stigwood passed on a, on a track that Robin Lamplight, I think it was called, uh, sung, and and that went uh, in favour of a track with Barry singing lead. But it, it would have happened anyway. So then there was the three of us. Then I put my hand up and started to ask questions where all the money was going. Look, don't get me wrong, we lived very well. We always stayed in the most palatial hotels and all that sort of thing. But the, but the fact was that, that uh, there was a conflict of interest there because as manager, we signed a management agreement with him as then as manager, he advises us, us to uh, sign with him for recording. So there's a conflict of interest there. His job as manager was to get us the best deal he could for us. You can't negotiate on someone's behalf uh, with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he was doing. So. Look, it all unraveled, but that's life, and we all moved on. I went on to uh, uh, management myself and producing, and with a very talented um, uh, a young man, an Irish singer-songwriter called Jonathan Kelly. We never had that magical hit single for various reasons, um, but he did so... Uh, well, um, on out with with his albums, it played to quite big audiences in concert at universities and colleges. That was a lovely experience. L- life is an adventure. So, but the thing is, it's it's all turned come full circle now with this band that I'm with. Um, and that's where we should move to. Let's fast the, forward to 2022 the, and the best of the BG. And Colin Peterson, a great montage of songs there from the actual show itself. Tell us about the show. Goodness me. I 
I've been out of the limelight for a long, long time. I met up my my ex-wife, Joanne, we're still very close friends, was working for a music publisher, um, MCA, in Sydney. And on a trip to um, Tamworth, she came across Keith Urban, who she signed for publishing immediately. She, she saw the stardom in Keith Urban. These were very early days, you should remember. Yes. Keith was managed by a, a man called Greg Shaw. And the Redcliffe Council put on a bit of a tribute to my life at the museum. <laughs> I joked to the audience on the opening, I said, so this is where um, ageing pop stars end up <laughs> in museums. <laughs> anyway, I invited Greg, who I'd kept in contact with, uh, to this um, exhibition. And a couple of weeks after that, he phoned me up and said, Colin, that was great, that exhibition, and, and it was so well presented. And, and he said, by the way, I'm managing a band, a BG tribute band. The alarm bell sort of rang for me because, now I don't want to sound elite, elitist here, but when you've been in the real deal, I was a bit reluctant because I didn't want to be in something that was okay sort of thing. And I said to Greg, oh, look, I don't know about this, Greg, really. Um, I haven't, you know, been up on a stage even for so many years and whatever. And he said, you spoke to the audience really well in, in, in Redcliffe. At least come and see the band. So he sends a, a, a driver up to me. I was living in Mul Mulaney. I met Greg at the airport. We went up to um, Townsville. And I remember the moment. It was about halfway through the third song. And I thought, bloody hell. This band are really good. You know, they really are. And there's no sort of flash in what they're playing. They're, everything's so subtle and, and, and they're really good. And the production's good. And I turned to Greg and I said, this band are really, really great, Greg. He said, I know they've been doing this for 24 years or 22 years or something. And he said, would you like to be involved in it? And I said, what do you mean involved? He said, well, I envisage you getting up a few times during the show and giving little stories that lead on to the next song and just give the audience some idea of what it was like to really be there at the time. That will be your job. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And the first show was in Penrith and I was so nervous. I really was nervous. What year was this, Colin? Oh, goodness me, this could be going on three years ago oh, okay. now. okay, yeah, yeah. So I'm pacing up, up, up and down the veranda of, the, of this little cottage I was renting in Mullaney, and I wrote out uh, little pieces of what I, what, what I was uh, planning on saying, and I learnt them off. I didn't have mum by, by my side, unfortunately. But anyway, uh, and then I get a call from a, a friend of mine called Ron Kelly, 
who was an actor, and he said uh, he, he was aware of what, what what I was undertaking here, and he said, how are you going with it, Colin? Have you learned what, what you're going to say? Have you learned it? And I said, yeah. He said, do you feel comfortable with it? And I said, yeah, yeah I th think it's well written and it's concise. And he said, said, now let me tell you something. He said, if you get up on that stage and it seems like you're giving a speech, it'll still be, it'll still be okay because what you're saying is interesting, but if you can make the audience feel that you've just strolled on and you're having a chat, he said, then you'll get them. And there's a big difference, he said. And I've taken his advice on board and uh, and it's natural to me now. I just feel so relaxed when I walk on. Obviously, it's work and I've got, got, got to remember things and, and names and blah, blah, blah. But I, I, I focus on like three or four faces, make sure the light, our lighting guy... Um, has set it up so I can see the first few rows. And I, I just chat to a face and tell a little story and then another face and 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 just have a chat, as, yeah. as, as he said. And um, the audience seemed to enjoy my, my part of the show. But, um, look, I'm not the whole show. The, the band are lovely players. Yep, that, they, that they montage really sounded are. terrific. Die and you've only got the, those mm. vocals. They're so mm. close. Yep. They really are. Yep. Uh, but the whole thread of the show is the songs. It's those wonderful songs that the Gibb Brothers wrote over 40-odd years. And the great news is the show is coming to Ipswich on November the 12th at the Ipswich Civic Centre. Uh, let's spread the news, podcast listeners, and get as many people there as we can. Colin Peterson, this has been an absolute pleasure and honour to have this it chat was, with you today. It was great fun for me, and uh, thank you for, for making me feel so relaxed as well. Thanks again to Colin Peterson, and a reminder to look for handy links in the show notes, including to Ipswich Civic Centre, where you can book your tickets online for the best of the Bee Gees. Ipswich Today is supported by Kinetics, people-powered web hosting trusted by Australian businesses since 1999. This podcast is also listener-supported. Please make a once-only gift or regular donation to help keep it online. Just go to ipswichtoday.com.au and click the Donate button on the homepage to make a payment through PayPal. Follow and stream this podcast from your favourite app, including iHeartRadio and Amazon Music Podcasts, or play Ipswich Today from smart speakers. Music is supplied by Purple Planet Music. This is Alan Roebuck. Thank you for listening. Enjoying Ipswich today? Please share the love on your socials.